Today's show has some audio of graphic violence. Be warned. It's Tuesday, June 30th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The New York Times had a really good article on the front page of today's print edition. It ran online two days ago. Three words, 70 cases, the tragic history of I Can't Breathe. You know about George Floyd. You probably remember that those same three words were said by Eric Garner. Protesters in New York City tried their hardest to make us remember it. And the Times unearthed scores of other examples. From Las Vegas. Those are the last words of Byron Williams, who died after being pinned down and handcuffed for biking without a light at night. And here's Marshall Miles, who died in custody in Sacramento, California. His protestations now familiar. The article advanced our knowledge of the number of men, mostly black and Latino men, who died in custody after proclaiming, I can't breathe. And it also got into the science of being able to breathe enough to say, I can't breathe, but still being in real danger. And one thing it didn't do was quote a skeptic. Someone who thinks, I can't breathe, is said so often now that cops can't really trust it. But I have such a quote for you. It is, in fact, uttered by conservative America's favorite criminal justice expert, Heather McDonald. Now, as I speak to you right now on the Fox News site, the number one story in the Fox Flash section of the site is Heather McDonald calls Black Lives Matter movement, quote, extraordinarily reckless based on, quote, utter hypocrisy. All right. Here's Heather McDonald, not on Fox, but on a conversation I heard over a week ago with Rich Lowry of the National Review. They will say that the claim, I can't breathe, is now quite standard for people who are under arrest. Does that mean that you should ignore it completely as a cop? I don't think so. Yeah, I'm not as well sourced on police as you are, but a cop friend that I rely on a lot was somewhat defensive of this maneuver of, of sitting on them and said exactly the same thing you've heard every resistance suspect says they can't breathe now and when Mm -hmm. they say it you know they obviously can breathe because they're they're talking and if Lowry's sentiment there seems like common sense well if you can say i can't breathe you can breathe there's much more advanced thinking on this and i would recommend you read the new york times article but let us give the final word on this to heather mcdonald from that fox interview today. It is racist to call the cops racist. This is sweeping generalizations that has no basis in the truth. That is conservative America's number one policing expert still in good standing. And I suppose something of an anthropologist examining the race that is the police in America. Don't want to be racist against them. On the show today, I spiel about ways that Donald Trump does take in information. The successful ways He takes in information. There are two, maybe three, narrow avenues still open. But first, there are so many studies about coronavirus, it's hard to keep track. It used to be easier to understand all the studies out there because there was a process known as peer review. I mean, there still is. It just takes a while. And as a great thinker and righteous dude once said, life moves pretty fast. So now all these studies 
are out in what are called preprints. But can you trust the preprints? How, how can you vent studies that are preprints? And dare I ask, are they bullshit? Maria Konnikova, the number one bestseller in Amazon's business decision-making section, is here right now not to make a decision about business, not to tout her book, The Biggest Bluff, but to answer our questions and to question preprints, are they bullshit? These days, there are so many studies coming out to try to get our minds around this challenge that we're up against with the coronavirus. And sometimes they contradict each other. Often they build on each other. This, in general, is a way that science is supposed to work. But I don't know if it's supposed to work at this breakneck speed. So what you see are people in the press touting a study that may have come out. And this is what's called a preprint, which is an early in the process version of a study, which maybe can lead us in the right direction or maybe not. And I just wanted to get a person who knows what she's talking about to give us some idea of how large the grain of salt should be that we take these preprints with. Well, luckily, we have such a person on, I was going to say on staff, but she just does it for free and for the occasional plug of her book, The Biggest Bluff. She is Maria Konnikova. She plays Is That Bullshit with us. She is an award-winning author. Hello, Maria. Hey, Mike. How are you? Have you won awards? I figured you'd I have won, won awards. awards. Who has it? What award have you won? Give me an award. Um, I have won the award. Well, this year I won the award for... Um, Media Award for Excellence in Science Journalism That's for good. 2019. But when I said give me an award, I, I meant g- give me an award. Would you um, like it? Right. I will. I will present it to you. Well, I will. I will give my, you an excellence in gist journalism award. All my yeah, which is a different kind of journalism, a substrain <laughs> that maybe there's some signs is real journalism, but it's too early to tell. It's in preprint form, which brings us to the topic at hand. So what exactly are preprints? Are they first drafts? So preprints are basically anything you want them to be. They are papers that are not yet, it's exactly what it says, not yet in print. So basically, if you are a scientist, if you're a researcher, these days the number of fields has just increased in terms of who publishes preprints. There are certain servers and you can upload your work there. There's just a huge, huge gamut in terms of quality. Sometimes you have things that basically are going to be submitted as journal articles and people want to get the data out there sooner, but they're really submitting to good journals and this is stuff that's going to eventually be published and it's like a pre-peer review or Mm -hmm. it's even already accepted, but they just publish it as a preprint because it's not out yet and won't be out for a while. Or you can, you know, decide I am going to run this study with no control groups and I'm going to do it over one day and I'm going to publish that data. And that's also going to be a preprint. That's the other end of the spectrum. Both are allowed to appear. So the biggest sites are these sites that are called the archive with an X. Um, the X is the Greek letter chi. There's bio archive, oh, there's med archive. I was wondering where the X would go in the archive, but now I get it. Yes. The archive. So yeah, it's spelled the ar- A-R-X-I-V. The yes. Yeah. Um, so there's bio archive, there's med archive, and then there's just archive. And They've been around for a while, and they have a very, very basic vetting process where they try to make sure that stuff that's just patently horrible 
doesn't appear. However, it sometimes fails, and so that stuff will appear. Things can get taken down as well. But there's no editing process. There's no real fact-checking process. It just goes up, and then anyone can download it. Anyone can read it. And it's like a massive peer review in on the internet. So you've you've taught me some things. I didn't know this. It seems to me that when we say preprint, in the times before we were hustling to figure out how this novel virus really worked, the best practice would be just everyone hold your breath, wait for it to be peer-reviewed. This is the vetting process. Now, there is urgency to it. So I always wonder, okay, how far should we loosen our standards? And I just thought all preprints were part of a looser standard. But you're saying within this category, there are some preprints that literally have been accepted to journals. And there are some preprints that maybe the author never really had a great hope that they would survive peer review. Yes, this is absolutely, that's correct. There's a very vast quality differential in preprints. Okay, so this, first of all, I think we need a different category. The it's It's been accepted by a prestigious journal. Does that mean it has been peer-reviewed or th- by being accepted? Yeah, if it's yeah. already been accepted, yes. But usually if it's already been accepted, it's probably not going to go on BioArchive, but it might have been there beforehand. So these are the papers that are, are going to get accepted. And... Sometimes people will upload them anyway. And I'm not sure. I think different journals have different criteria for whether or not you can publish advanced papers once it's been accepted. So it's not uncommon, for instance, for there to be a preprint of a paper that it's been accepted, but it's accepted in a slightly different form. So you'll end up seeing this preprint in a prestigious journal, but it's going to already have the peer review changes that did not appear in the preprint. Does that make sense? Okay, so there, it does, okay. but it seems to me that there should be some way to alerting the public, some designation other than preprint, something like, though this is the preprint version, this will be running in the journal Nature, the journal Science, uh, whatever, with certain changes. That seems to be a higher standard than, meh, it's just a preprint. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. That sometimes happens, it doesn't always happen. So when you go to read a study, either for this segment or uh, the journalism that you do for pay, let's say, um, when you read a study, way how to rub do it in, you... Mike, way to rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You obviously would love to read peer-reviewed studies. They're not always available. How then, what standards do you have for vetting, okay, while this is a preprint, this is the sort of uh, you know good, hopeful, yeah. seems like it's well-conducted study versus, okay, I really have to take this kind of, um, I already said grain of salt. I don't want to use that cliche again, but with a dollop of quartz. Yeah, I use the same exact process that I will use with journal articles, which is to have some sort of basic quality checks in mind when I just, first of all, read the abstract to even figure out, is it worth looking further? And then if I'm looking further when I read the paper. The first thing I will do is look up the study authors and see, do they have a background in this? You know, are they cited for this type of work? How respected are they? You know, where where are they doing this research? In general, do they have other quality papers out there? So that's the first check. And if that check fails, you know, maybe this is someone brilliant and this is their first ever paper. And yeah, I'm going to miss it probably. Because if I can't find anything about this person, 
person, I'm probably going to move on. So that's kind of the first thing. Then I look at the methodology. So, you know, if we're talking about a scientific study, how was it designed? Are there control groups? Um, Was this randomized? All of the things that you and I talk about so frequently when we try to assess quality of data in regular studies, I think it's even more important to do that in a preprint. You know, is this something that someone rushed off in 10 minutes, or not literally 10 minutes, but the scientific equivalent of 10 minutes? Or is this clearly <laughs> the, the result of kind of a long period of research of work where some real thought has gone into the study design? And you get both. You get both for sure. You know, this type of thing, when you have a pandemic, I totally understand the, the time crunch because oftentimes you have situations where, you know, if you wait for a peer-reviewed article, it's going to be months and months and months and people want data now. So I get it. It's different from like a psychology study where you can afford to wait a little longer for the results. So I get it. But there has been a huge, huge explosion in preprints in the last few months. Um, as of last week, there were over 7,000 papers on the pandemic on preprint servers. Oh, my God. And what would, I, since we're not talking about, I, I'm trying to establish a baseline, like a topic in the news or a topic <laughs> that people are interested in. What would be the normal amount on a server? Oh, um, just, I would say, dozens or hundreds, maybe, mm-hmm. but not thousands mm-hmm. and usually closer to dozens. So do you get the sense this is the scientific community trying as best they can? Or do you get the sense, sure, there's some of that, but there's also a lot of uh, charlatans or, I don't know, maybe just unscrupulous, loose type researchers trying to make their name? Both. Both. I mean, I think there are some great things that are coming out of it, like some of the studies that we have on, you know, how you can disinfect personal protective equipment. Some of that was published in preprints, causing people to really look at it, companies to then try to figure out, is there a way we can reuse N95 masks, things that have been incredibly useful. So yeah, there's great science and there's, oh, the full genetic code of the virus was published as a preprint. That was incredibly useful so that people could actually start, you know, figuring out how do we attack this thing. But there have also been some things like the AIDS conspiracy theory that, oh my God, you know, this, there are some uncanny similarities between COVID and HIV. Uh-oh. Um, and that ended up being withdrawn from the preprint archives oh, but, after but that was li- But that was, li- that was literally on a server yes. for a little while. Yes. And people picked it up. The media picked it up. What were the motivations of the people doing that, do you think? Just bad science or? Who knows? Can, I, I uh, mean, yeah, who in the world knows? I, I can only begin to imagine why you would want to publish something like that. Maybe to become well-known, become, uh, you know, so that people would think that you're doing something provocative. Maybe you don't realize how bad the science is. You know, there are just some really shitty scientists out there. Who, yes. who don't realize it. There's been over and over, over the last few months, there have been bad studies, bad science, picked up by media, shared multiple times, and then retracted right away because people have been like, what the hell is this? This is not medicine. This is really bad. And that's a problem. That's definitely a problem. 
Okay, so double-blind studies and certainly peer-reviewed, it's not perfect, but it is the gold standard in the scientific community for what counts as an authenticated study. But now we do have this very pressing issue upon us. If that's the gold standard, is there an agreed-upon silver standard or bronze standard <laughs> for maybe we could say it's not perfect, but this is better than just you know any any old study where the only gatekeeper is if you have the password to the internet archive? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think you need to have someone who knows the field and who's actually conversant in the thing that they are doing research on. I mean, that's just like a baseline. We're not talking silver. Like this is like to qualify for the race because right now mm -hmm. you have a lot of people who are like statisticians who are all of a sudden publishing all of these models and all of these things being like, look, you know, this is this and this is that. And sure, they're statisticians, but they don't understand epidemiology. Like, they don't know anything right, about right. infectious disease. And so that's just incredibly misleading. Right. There is a big study that I talked to Henry Grabar about joggers and how far their droplets exactly. might go. And it was done by a statistician and not replicated in an actual environment. It was theoretical droplet study. Exactly. And it was bad. And that was a preprint. Yes. So that's a very good example of something that scared people, that got in the news. And even though it's been walked back, as so many of these things have, they're already out there. And we know how difficult it is to get rid of misinformation once it's out there. So first of all, we want that. Secondly, you know, we want to look at numbers. We want to see control groups. Even in a preprint, if you see that this has been done on two people, four people, it's a little bit problematic. Like the French doctor who started this whole brouhaha about using, you know, anti-malarial medicines that is going to cure coronavirus and COVID yes. and Trump picked this up and all this stuff happened. And if you look at his numbers, if you looked at his data, he had no controls. He had, there was nothing um, in terms of good science um, because you need control groups, you need adequate sample sizes, and all of that was absent. So I think, yeah, sure, we don't have time right now to run these huge randomized studies, but at least you want some control. You want some semblance of the scientific process. Yeah. So when I ask the question, the, the titular question of this segment, um, it can mean different things, but I'm going to define our is that bullshit question pretty specifically. So I'm going to ask you, is that bullshit preprints? And what I mean by that is this. Should I, when I see that something is in preprint form, should I just automatically reject it outright? Not say, oh, it can't be true, but you know what? When something's preprint, I'm really not going to pay attention to it. So are preprints bullshit to that extent? No, they're not. There are definitely some high quality preprints, and preprint is an important way when you need to get data out there, when you need to get the opinions of multiple specialists, when you basically want a wide peer review, it can make the eventual studies, it can make the eventual publications much stronger. Mm -hmm. But when something is a preprint, when should I say that is bullshit? I think you just need to do some sanity checks. And I think that this is actually the most important for media, that you need to see where is the data coming from? What's the quality of the data? Who's the person? Where are they? What's their background? You just need to do some basic, quick journalistic legwork. This isn't going to take a long time. Honestly, it takes five minutes 
to do just that sort of cursory background check. If it passes that, then you can start reading, then you can start diving deeper. You know, oftentimes it's going to be a bad paper. The quality ratio might be quite off, but you will find some good stuff and you will find some things that are really important, but you have to do more work than you otherwise would. The thing is, though, there are some things that have been published in peer-reviewed publications that are also horrible. You and I have seen over the years some pretty crappy studies. Um, So there are some journals out there with really low standards. So it's not like if it's been published, it's great. And if it's a preprint, it's not. Or journals with high standards that have had to withdraw. Exactly. Yep, there are retractions out there. There's fraud. There are bad actors. I mean, you basically, you always have to really vet the research. Maria Konnikova vets the research for us in this branded segment called Is That Bullshit? Maria is also author of The Biggest Bluff. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you so much, Mike. And now the spiel. Today, the New York Times reported that President Trump received a written briefing in late February about a Russian military intelligence unit paying bounties to the Taliban to kill coalition troops in Afghanistan. Many other media outlets confirm this. The AP reported that Trump was briefed on the killings in person by John Bolton, actually, in 2019. Also, there were written briefings in early 2019. And also, the AP reported today that these concerns about Russian bounties were included in a second written presidential daily briefing earlier this year. Now, let us for a second discount the Bolton briefing because I can imagine the thought process of the other person in the room when something like this, he keeps saying words, but I just keep seeing mustache. I do think, however, President Trump has a credible, perhaps almost ironclad excuse for not having read these reports. And it's that he's not a strong reader. He's a reluctant reader common with boys. What I'm saying is, if it was written down, all evidence is that Donald Trump did not read it. He is at least, can we at least give him credit for establishing that as a pattern? Quite plausible. Not a reader. But let's also recall that over the weekend, Trump did tweet out a video of angry Floridians yelling white power. It was right there on the video, not written down. It was being spoken. So how'd he miss that? Ben Shapiro has this theory. If he'd actually known what was in the video, you think he would have tweeted it? Or is it more likely that like everybody else, the sound was off on his computer. He sees a person yelling with a Trump 2020 sticker on the front of the golf cart. Trump loves everybody who loves him. And this is a simple fact of the matter. And so he retweets the thing. The sound was down excuse. But John Bolton, speaking on CNN, adds a layer. The sound wasn't off on the computer. It was off inside the president's head. He doesn't pay attention to a lot of things. Uh, It's entirely possible that he tweeted this video uh, because he saw the sign, I think it was in the first go-kart that said uh, Trump 2020 or something like that. That's all he needed to see. Aha. So Trump doesn't read except for the word Trump, but upon reading that word, he immediately loses the ability to hear anything else. Seems like a flaw you might not want in a president. Okay, so maybe Trump is so distracted by the visual that he then can't pay attention to the spoken word. 
The act of reading a sign that says Trump, it caused momentary deafness. Well, what if we get this guy in a situation where it's just a voice on the other end of the line feeding directly into the president's ear, and then it's the president's own voice connected directly with the person on the other end? Now, here's the problem. Those ears, the mouth that I talked about, they are rooted through the brain, and the brain in question is Donald Trump's. It turns out that phone calls are also not so great. CNN Carl Bernstein reporting that, quote, In hundreds of highly classified phone calls with foreign heads of state, President Donald Trump was so consistently unprepared for discussion of serious issue and delusional, according to two people familiar with the calls, that the, quote, president himself posed a danger to the national security of the United States. Bernstein goes on to describe these calls as, quote, free form, fact efficient, stream of conscious ramblings full of fantasy and off the wall pronouncements based on his intuitions, guesswork, the opinions of Fox News TV hosts and social media misinformation. Okay, so let's recap. The president is uncomfortable with, even hostile to the written word. He does not engage in it. The president is ill-equipped to handle communication that includes a visual component when paired with an auditory component. So that's out. And the president is, what's the word Carl Bernstein used? I guess dangerous when allowed to talk on the phone. So we are basically down to our president having to communicate via a series of grunts and hand gestures. Anything more evolved than what an Australopithecus anamensis might understand, and we are in trouble. Can't have a phone conversation, can't respond to the written word, can't properly process visual stimuli. And yet, what is their number one argument against Joe Biden? The guy's not so good with words. Here's Sean Hannity last night. He's like the invisible, ghost, weak, let's be charitable, forgetful candidate, but Americans now, including Democrats, are beginning to see problems with him cognitively. How real is this? Compared to Donald Trump, unreal. It is unreal, Sean. Unlike the Russian bounties, the white power claim, the telephone calls, it is totally unreal. And you know what? You could tell Donald Trump I said as much. Of course, if you do so via written communication, auditory communication, or telecommunication, there is no chance he'll be able to pay attention. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces The Gist. She read an unvetted study about the effects of coloring on Darjeeling or Earl Grey. It was a T-tint preprint. Daniel Schrader, Gist producer, is sitting on a study, not yet reviewed, that asks, do members of acapella clubs in high school have a healthier glow to their skin? It's a Glieglint preprint and it could change the game. The gist. I have developed a system of communication that utilizes interpretive dance, semaphore, and the latest in scratch and sniff technology. I put Jared in charge and there is a chance we could finally get through to the president. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>